And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. Hope everyone enjoyed our last episode. Admittedly, it was a little while ago. You know, uh, things happen sometimes. But our last episode uh, talked about Godzilla Final Wars with my good friend, Mr. Adam Tebow. Hope everyone enjoyed that show. That was a lot of fun. We've got a great show for you today. We're taking a look at two more episodes of the classic Ultraman. We're seeing, uh, looking at episodes 21 and 22, featuring the monsters Kemular and Telesodon. We are also taking a look at Avengers Volume 1, number 199, finishing up the Red Ronin story in that comic series. But before we get to that, we've got a couple of news items to cover, so let's get right into it. Godzilla King of the Monsters has obviously finished its uh, box office run. Its final gross was $110 million domestic, $385.9 million internationally. This is good enough to be number 18 of 2019 right now domestically. Uh, as we are recording this, Joker will pass it. Joker just opened with a uh, 90 some odd million dollar opening for the largest opening ever in uh, in October, ironically passing Venom, which set the same record last year. So Joker will pass it. So looking at maybe 19, maybe 20, uh, really depends on uh, some of the other box office uh, for for the films coming out for the balance of 2019. Kind of a disappointing run. It actually uh, will rank in behind Kong Skull Island, which grossed domestically $168 million. And obviously both uh, are behind domestically uh, Godzilla 2014. Oddly, worldwide, Kong Skull Island actually grossed a little bit more than uh, Godzilla 2014. So we are still on track for Kong versus, or uh, I should say Godzilla versus Kong in March of 2020. We still haven't seen a trailer. So uh, I don't know what to make of that. I do know that uh, uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters actually did very well on home media. It was the number one uh, physical sales disc for a few weeks after its release, and it's a beautiful uh, Blu-ray set, so I recommend uh, checking that one out if you haven't already gotten it. So, um, you know, again, I really liked King of the Monsters. Most people I know really liked it, and just unfortunately wasn't the right summer because it didn't rhyme with Blavengers Blend Game. And uh, so it wasn't going to make as much money. So uh, still, I'm glad to have it in my collection. I can watch it anytime I want to. In comics news, there's a new app out called Graphite. You know, uh, like the stuff inside a pencil, Graphite Comics. And this has an all-you-care-to-read-for-free ad-supported model. And they apparently do have a, a paid uh, option as well. I'm using it free. Now, this is of interest to Work Destruction Directive listeners because of some of the publishers involved with this uh, venture, including IDW, Boom, and Legendary, meaning that for free on this app, you can read a ton of Godzilla, Pacific Rim, Power Rangers, and Kong Skull Island comics. Uh, it appears they have all of the IDW, Godzilla, uh, various uh, ongoings and miniseries. They have at least two of the Kong Skull Islands. They have the Pacific Rim Aftermath 
uh, book, and they um, appear to have Go Go Power Rangers. I don't know about the regular Power Rangers book. Go Go Power Rangers was the, uh, or still is, I should say, the one that is set um, <clears throat> in the very early days of the Mighty Morphin era. But all this is free, so you can't beat free. It's a very nice uh, app. It's got a lot of other publishers on there, too, that have uh, comics and manga that are not related to giant monsters, so you might want to poke around on there. Uh, it is available for Android and for iOS. It is apparently not available uh, on the Fire uh, iOS, so I can't get it on my Fire tablet, but I have it on my Android phone, and it works very nice. So please check that out if you want to read some uh, some giant monster-related comics. And finally, in very timely Ultraman news, Mill Creek, who we've espoused on uh, on this show before for their uh, budget releases of of Ultraman, actually, uh, they announced a while back that they had got, got um, obtained, I should say, the rights to all of the Ultra series. And they weren't kidding, because starting in October, as uh, which is the month that this episode is being released, and then moving forward, they are releasing a ton of Ultraman content on Blu-ray and digital. And some of these are even getting steelbook releases. So first up, we get the complete series of Ultra Q and the complete series of Ultra Man on Blu-ray with digital. Uh, then uh, the complete series of Ultra Seven, and then we're also, <coughs> excuse me, we're also getting the complete series plus movie of Ultraman Orb and Ultraman Jeed. So two of the modern series right there. So they are definitely going to be blanketing the market in. Uh, as much Ultraman uh, material as you care to consume. Now, um, you know, over at Shout Factory, uh, they've been putting out a uh, very regular basis to Super Sentai uh, collections, and my friend Adam has, has all of them. I don't have all of them, but man, I am going to go all in on these Ultramans, and this is going to really cost me. But, you know, I, Ultraman is my favorite Tokusatsu TV property. I'm a huge fan of the Ultra series, and just to support this and get all these uh, oddball ones that, uh, that come after that you could never get officially in English, you can only get Hong Kong dubs or something like that, is uh, I'm really excited for that. I'm really excited to see some of these ones uh, that I've only seen bits and pieces of, like Taro. Um, you know, Ultraman Leo, for instance, was available for on Crunchyroll, and I watched a good portion of it subtitled, but a lot of it I'd only seen raw. So I'm just eager to get this, and I'm, I'm also very eager to see Ultraman on Blu-ray. I've been working with these Mill Creek DVDs, and I, and I love these DVDs so much, but I'm really looking forward to seeing how the series gets cleaned up on uh, on Blu-ray, so this is uh, this is going to be a, a big thing for me going forward. So expect to hear more about these uh, Blu-ray releases as as they come up. Uh, that's all the news I've got. If you've got any news, go ahead and send it to me, Earth Destruction Directive at yahoo.com, and uh, we'll get it here on the show. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back with our first of two episodes of Ultraman right here on Earth Destruction Directive. Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to do it. You might want to only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. 
Because what will happen is it'll be used to you at a particular t and then if you go out of that t it scrambles to uh, a t and it doesn't t fast enough. So it's better to just set it up. Oh, okay. It, do it really doesn't work well. So I checked right. uh, I checked my, uh, mm -hmm. my pro okay. It definitely built, built me for the hotel for all three of us. Join Back to the Bins every week for goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman, episode 21, entitled Break Through the Smoke, a.k.a. Breach the Wall of Smoke, subtitled The Appearance of Poison Gas Monster Kemular, first aired on December 4th, 1966 on TBS, of course, Tokyo Broadcast System. Our writer is Taro Kaido, our special effects by Koichi Takano, and our director is Yuzi Higuchi. Now, uh, Kaido and Higuchi are actually making their series debuts here in this episode. And uh, right now, our summary is adapted from ultra.wikia.com. Dozens of birds are found dead, and soon, Kemular emerges and attacks a few girls picnicking on the mountain. The science patrol begins an investigation. While Fuji and Ashino investigate the problem, Kemular creates a cloud of smoke, and the rest of the team arrives as backup when communications are interrupted. Kemular soon shows himself and the Science Patrol attack. After blasting the kaiju with their weapons, Kemular again uses his smoke, causing the team to retreat. Kemular makes his way to Fuji's downed VTOL, but before it can crush the vehicle, the team gives Hoshino directions through the radio on how to take off and escape. Kemular advances to the village as Ide works on a counter for the poisonous smoke. The military tries to halt the creature with a line of tanks, but their shells have little effect and Kemular easily destroys them and manages to escape. The monster soon smashes into the city and begins his rampage. Hayata's VTOL is blown from the sky, and as he falls, Hayata transforms into Ultraman. Kemular holds off the hero with his smoke, and the Specium Ray fails to destroy him. As Ultraman battles the creature, he holds it up, which allows the Science Patrol to hit his weak spot right in the center of his back with the new weapon created by Ide. Kemular falls down and manages to crawl back into his underground home, never to be seen again. A strong episode here from start to finish. It uh, draws the viewer in with an intriguing beginning, and then it's got plenty of action as Kemular really goes on a rampage. So let's get into the notes. The dead birds immediately draw you in because obviously something is wrong in this idyllic mountainside location. And after a more, super uh, after a more supernatural episode previously with uh, the Dragon Hydra, this one leans more on science fiction, and I find the dead birds to be a realistic touch, as is the follow-on discussion about volcanic gases leaking out and killing animals, which in a country with as much volcanic activity as Japan is a you know, fairly commonplace thing, I would imagine. Now the hikers, they show off plenty of mid-60s active women's fashion with high-waisted, light-colored pants and various sweaters. A far cry from bikini girls, but, you know, I'm a sucker for the little cultural tidbits like this. Now, the girls seem to be drinking Coca-Cola at their picnic. I did a little bit of research. Coke got into Japan in 1957. So it is reasonable to, to assume that this is the case. Although, on uh, on the copy I have of this episode, we don't really get a full look at any of the cans. Uh, they, they look like it, but they look like they might be an older Coke can that wouldn't have been on sale at this point in 1967. So it's hard to tell. Uh, in my mind, they're, they're drinking Coke, of course. Now, this scene transitions to the creepiness of seeing Kemular's glowing eyes in the fog. And luckily, the girls make it out of there. 
Now, while this episode does put Fuji in danger and in fact injure her, it would seem that killing civilian women are a bridge too far at this point. At Science Patrol HQ, Fuji mentions that in addition to the birds and the report from the girls, other reports from the area include dead fish in the waterways and rocks which change color overnight. Ide dismisses it as a stuff of fairy tales beneath the Science Patrol, and Arashi says that it is work specifically for women and children. Now, the casual sexism here on the part of the Science Patrol is part and parcel for 1967, especially in Japan. But it is interesting in that neither Hayata nor the captain really partake in it, only Ide and Arashi. Hayata later in the scene asks if the captain thinks it is safe to send Fuji alone. Now, this can be interpreted as either sending, quote, just the girl, or sending, quote, just one officer. And coming from Hayata, it seems the latter was the intention. Hayata is always presented as a, as a good guy. Uh, that Hoshino stows away and bums a ride just makes it even more on the nose what they're going for here. Now, Fuji and Hoshino's relationship in this episode is uh, exemplary of both their characters, with Hoshino calling her Big Sister as a nickname, with Fuji then correcting him to call her by her real name while they're on a mission. Hoshino, being the child identification, he wants to be seen as an equal member, while Fuji seems assured of her position in the Science Patrol. It's also sort of a sci-fi trope, especially for this era, the 1950s and 1960s, for the, quote, girl and the kid to get thrown together, for the relationship to be presented as a big sister, little brother kind of uh, relationship, to highlight the empathy and concern of the female and the youthful exuberance of the kid. And that's what we get here. And it, it, it works well. Fuji and Hashino play well off of each other, and it's nice to see them teaming up and being able to mix it up a little bit. So during the investigation, Fuji goes to the earthquake center and talks to the scientists there. They report that there has been a slight tremor for a month. Now, while this is slightly different from what we normally see, this does in fact fall in with the moving epicenter concept, which we've talked about here on the show, which signals a subterranean monster. So, no surprise when Kemuler appears from inside a volcano. We see more Science Patrol tech here. They don gas masks to investigate the crater. I like that uh, their voices, while they're wearing the gas masks, are actually foleyed to be hollow and echoed, uh, like you would expect to hear a voice inside of a gas mask. I thought that was a nice touch. Now, when Kemular makes his first appearance, it is very impressive, especially the smoke billowing out of his mouth at a very rapid rate. I'm guessing it's a a fog machine or something tucked down inside of him, but it really looks impressive as he basically vomits up massive clouds of poisonous gas. Now, Kemular does not appear to be shot in an overcranked style. Um, overcranking, of course, where you, where you overcrank the camera to give the monster a sense of size when played back at 24 frames per second. Instead, Kemular appears to move very quickly. So either the camera is uh, being filmed at normal speed or perhaps slightly undercranked. Uh, it's an interesting effect, and it does give him a, uh, a very animalistic look. Now, this sequence leads up to Hashino being forced to pilot the mini VTOL, as Fuji has actually succumbed to the gas and passed out. This is a very tense scene, as Kemular bearing down on the craft, as over the radio, the captain runs Hashino through the takeoff procedure. It's cut together very well, showing that Hoshino is a kid, but he is able to keep his cool in a high-pressure situation as he gets multiple instructions have to follow. In fact, once he takes off, he does in fact wipe the sweat from his brow, which I thought was an amusing touch. 
Now, when Kemulor begins his attack, the villagers being overcome by his poison gas is another very creepy scene. It's, it's actually a, a big trend in this episode for the creepiness. Visually, everything appears desolate and eerie, with the gas looking like a fog just drifting here and there. Now, civilians are seemingly lying dead in the streets. That's pretty heady stuff. Maybe we're just supposed to think they're unconscious. Visually, it certainly looks like Kemulor wiped out most of this village. Now, back at the HQ, we do get to see Ide embracing his role as the scientist, with him actually in the laboratory and in a lab coat. Safe to say at this point, Ide's character is well-established. After this, we're treated to a fairly long sequence of the JSDF assaulting Kemular with tanks and missiles. This scene actually reminds me of a similar repulsion attack scenes by the JSDF over in the Godzilla series, including one we covered on a recent episode in Destroy All Monsters. Shot very similar to that scene, um, except I think that scene is, is a little bit more in the evening and this one's more during the day. It's staged and shot in a very similar fashion to a lot of these sequences in the Godzilla series. It's a real treat, since we don't often get that in the Ultra series, compared to the, obviously, the higher-budgeted Godzilla series. They just wasn't necessarily enough money to do these types of scenes all the time, so it's nice to get it. Now, from here, we move to Kemulor in the city, laying waste to several buildings in the process. Now, similar to the previous scene, we did not always get this sort of traditional die-kaiju-on-the-loose action, although, spoiler, we will see it again in the next episode. It's not as dynamically shot as the JD, JSDF scene, but the model and suit, the, they're both done really well. They're well executed. It's a lot of fun to see Kemular in action. It's not often we get to see a, uh, you know, a, a quadrupedal monster going through a city like that. Now, when the Science Patrol gets involved, initially, Arashi is using the spider shot. Now, it's nice to see some continuity of technology, especially as going forward, the spider shot becomes something of Arashi's weapon of choice in the series. So it's nice to see it here. Now, Kemular, he he's able to knock Hayata out of the sky by playing possum. Basically, he waits until Hayata has made several passes in the jet VTOL before rearing up and knocking him out of the sky, which I thought was pretty funny. Now, I said earlier that Hoshino shows his cool under pressure. Hayata shows how cool he is under pressure. Pulling out the beta capsule while free falling to the ground and transforming safely into Ultraman. Very, very cool. Now, Kemular ends up being a strong opponent for Ultraman, if only because he's so low to the ground. I get a strong, like, Greco Roman or freestyle wrestling vibe from this, with Ultraman trying to shoot under Kemular to be able to stand him up and fight him. Kemular also completely no sells the Specium Beam, which is downright incredible. Who knew he was so tough? Of course, the real stars here in this scene are Ide and Arashi, who bullseye Kemular in the weak spot on his back. If this was a video game, it would have been flashing red, I think. Continuing to put over Kemular's toughness, even this does not kill him. Instead, he retreats back to his crater, becoming one of the very few Ultra Monsters to survive his fight with Ultraman. Now, our Denyumwa has the patrol coming to visit Fuji in the hospital. Now, Hayata is still missing, which is something they don't often address. They address it sometimes, but, you know, Hayata flies off as Ultraman, and uh, the last the Science Patrol saw of him was his VTOL getting destroyed. So no one knows where Hayata is. So uh, the chief advises the team to say that Hayata was called away to the Paris HQ. More on that in the next episode. So, uh, you know, so not to upset Fuji that Hayata is missing. Of course, once they get in the room, 
Good guy Hayata is already in there. And the patrol are so happy to see Hayata that they initially overlook Fuji, but then they shower her with gifts and flowers. Definitely a cute ending and well-themed given Fuji's actions earlier in the episode uh, as she uh, you know, very bravely went out on this mission by herself and then was injured in the line of duty and the rest of the team coming to, uh, to visit her in the hospital. Now, as has become something of a... Uh, 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 theme here on these Ultraman episodes. My good friend uh, and good friend of the show, Professor Allen, uh, of Quarterbin Podcast and Relatively Geeky Podcast Network fame, he actually sent me a little bit of pre-feedback about these episodes. So I'm going to cut in right now to what Allen wrote to me a few months back as he was uh, enjoying these episodes during a snow day uh, when he got a break from work. Uh, he says, Luke, well, school has been freezed out today, so I thought I'd watch the next two episodes of Ultraman. I know you're going to get to these soon, so here are some advanced thoughts. Episode 21, Break Through the Scope. Break Through the Smoke, excuse me. I'm not going to bury the lead. I really enjoyed this one. We start with an intense moment of dead birds, setting a serious tone for the adventure. The monster is great. Armadillo protection on his back, a tail that shoots energy blast, and the scenes of him stalking Fuji's plane, shot from inside the plane, were really well done. Even the landing effects of Fuji's plane seemed like a step up. Maybe she's just a better pilot than the boys, even though they'd never admit to that. And Ide in a lab coat doing science? This episode had it all. I agree with you, Professor. I think uh, you and I are right on the same page with this one. Um, you know, overall, you know, Kemular, not a particularly popular monster, but he ends up being a strong opponent and one of the more interestingly designed quadrupeds. The story itself is a nice blend of an ultra-Q style mystery on the front end and then traditional monster action in the back end. And it, it really is great to see Fuji get a field assignment. Hoshino even acquits himself nicely. It's not a standout episode. You know, um, Kem like I said, Kemular is not one of the standout monsters, but it's still a really strong episode. And you should not skip this over if you're doing your Ultraman watch through. So uh, I really, I dug this one quite a bit. I hadn't, I'd remembered some bits of this from when I previously watched it, but uh, I was really impressed with it this time. And Professor, I'm glad that uh, you and I are on the same page. Uh, all right, folks. Well, have you watched this one? Do you like Kemular? What do you think about Fuji and Hoshino getting out in the field and mixing it up a little bit? Why don't you send me an email, Directive at yahoo.com. We'll talk about it here on the show. I'm going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with our second Ultraman episode on this episode right after this. Ultraman will be right back after these messages. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Now, back to Ultraman. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman episode 22, Surface Direction Maneuver, also known as Overthrow the Surface, subtitled The Appearance of Underground Monster Telecidon, 
first aired December 11th, 1966 on Tokyo Broadcast System. Our writer is Wamoru Sasaki. Our special effects are by Koichi Takanano. And our director is Akio Jisoji. And uh, there actually wasn't a synopsis on Ultra.Wikia.com, so this is my synopsis for this episode. The Science Patrol welcome Agent Anne from the Paris HQ to Japan. She is there to escort Hayata back to Paris to be part of a prestigious space mission. As soon as Anne and Hayata leave, however, strange anomalies begin to occur, including a global communications disruption. While investigating, Ide spots who he thinks is Anne still in Japan, but he is dismissed. Eventually, the Science Patrol discovers that Anne is an agent of an underground ancient civilization that has begun an invasion of the surface. They release the monster to Lesodon, who begins to level Tokyo. Meanwhile, Hayata is a captive of the underground people who intend to brainwash him to use Ultraman as a weapon against the surface. Their brainwashing proves ineffective, however, and Ultraman returns to the surface to defeat Telesidon. The underground invasion stopped. Science Patrol soon meets the real Anne, who was captured and impersonated by the underground people. With the threat contained, Anne and Hayata jet off for their original planned mission. Wow, another well-assembled episode with a real mystery, a great science fiction premise, and one of the more recognizable monsters in the Ultra Kaiju pantheon with Telesida. So, uh, let's get right into the notes. Now, once again, the Paris HQ is mentioned. Uh, now, we've obviously heard of London HQ and a few others. You get the feeling that Paris must be the main Science Patrol HQ in Europe, with Tokyo obviously being Asia. I mean, even uh, though we don't get all these locations, it's easy to assume that there'd be uh, HQs in North and South America and Africa as well, even if Paris is the go-to international location that's often name-dropped on the series. I think it's interesting they, they chose Paris. I guess, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know really. I mean, uh, was I don't know that Japan was more of an ally with France than with any other European country. I don't really think that's true. So maybe they just liked Paris. I don't know. It's, it, I guess I'd always like that it gives the Science Patrol a legitimate international feel. Now, when Anne arrives at the HQ to pick up Hayata, the cinematography takes on an almost film noir style. There's a lot of stark, harsh lighting setups. Frequently, characters are obscured by set decorations, such as the desks or console. There's a lot of low angles shooting up or shooting around parts of the set, which is very interesting. Anne also never removes her sunglasses, ostensibly because she's a cool European agent. But, of course, we as the viewer, we know the score here. Now, once Anne and Hayata leave and the interference begins, it is quite the panic at the HQ. Now, still being shot in that same moody, almost akimbo, camera akimbo manner, everyone talks over one another, a very rare situation on this show, or really, if you get down to it, most tokusatsu shows, especially in the Showa era. I like this a lot. It strongly conveys a sense of confusion, as everyone is shouting out their reports all at once, and you see the captain trying to, to listen to everyone and sort it out. Very nicely done. Very subtle. Now, similar to the previous episode, the Science Patrol actually has to do some scientific investigations here. Again, giving the mystery portion of the episode a, a sort of ultra-Q feel. Now, this leads to the initial spotting of Anne, which uses a series of freeze-frame shots as she walks by the patrol's car and Ide spots her. Now, personally, I associate this freeze-frame shot more with the 1970s tokusatsu than the 1960s, but it contributes definitely to the intrigue or mystery plot nicely. 
For a frame of reference, if you've ever seen the original Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla from um, 1974, uh, they use this a lot when the, the I forget which character, but he's a, he's taking pictures and they use the, the freeze frame of it. They do the same thing here. And when Ide spots Anne during the later patrol, he's actually armed with his Mars 133 gun. Um, and Ide is armed with it later on in the episode as well. Uh, now, great to see continuity in terms of the technology once again, like we had with the spider shot in the previous episode. Um, now, when uh, uh, Ide is wielding the Mars 133, finally tracks down Anne, only for her to reveal herself as an underground person having no eyes. Now, this effect is somewhat less intense on the DVD, with the adhesive bandages used to create the, uh, uh, the effect clearly visible. Uh, think about uh, maybe if uh, you knew someone as a kid, or maybe one of your kids maybe had a, a lazy eye, at least when I was a kid, they would put a, a full eye bandage over the one eye to train the other eye to be stronger. I distinctly remember a classmate of mine when I was in uh, pre-K and kindergarten had this for a while. And uh, so I, that always kind of stuck with me, and that's clearly what it is. Uh, but I would like to think that this would have been smoother and much more effective during its original broadcast. Of course, I have no way to confirm that. Now, the effect itself is uh, its still nice. It's still the creepy thing that they don't have eyes, even if it's clear how they, uh, how they achieved it. Now, Telesidon emerges right up in the middle of the city, actually causing the street to buckle and bend up as he pushes his way through. An absolutely wonderful effect. And again, to be achieved on a television budget, especially a Japanese television budget in 1967, that is really something. And I, I definitely appreciated that scene. It's 1966, excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself. Now, while Kemular attacked an urban area in daylight, here, Telesidon is right in the heart of Tokyo at night. So it is very dramatic with the lighting. And then we get Telesidon's flaming breath and the explosions to it, and it all looks very moody. And there are a lot of explosions. I mean, like, a lot of explosions. It's like a 1970s Godzilla film with effects by Taroshi Nakano. There are so many explosions. A really strong monster in the loose sequence here. There's some great model destruction during Telesidon's rampage. Is he, you know, he's, he's not a monster that just happens to be walking through a city. He's a weapon, so he's out there destroying things. It's fantastic. Uh, as an aside, Fuji once again is out in the field as the invasion of the underground people. Clearly an all-hands-on-deck situation, so she's not staying at the base for this one. Then catch up with Hayata, who's being held prisoner by the underground people. Now, this is very interesting. Their spies have discovered his identity as Ultraman. The people that he works with every day don't suspect a thing. The underground people figured it out. Now, their plan is to brainwash him and use Ultraman as a soldier in their invasion force. And this makes perfect sense, I guess. But I do have to ask this question. Why not just hold him hostage so Ultraman can't stop Telesidon? I mean, it's doubtful that the armies of Earth can stand up to this monster. Why don't you just take Ultraman out of the equation, considering that every monster that's shown up on, in the last year has been fought by Ultraman and defeated. So let's take Ultraman out of the equation. But, you know, I guess they, they got a timetable. They want to move things along. Uh, now, this scene takes the moody scenes from earlier. It actually ramps them up, because it's even shot in black and white and definitely evokes a creepy noir motif. Um, the black and white here, it's a fairly daring choice considering the uh, bright, bold use of color on this series really makes these scenes stand out. What it reminded me of is, if you ever play Dungeons & Dragons, you know that uh, dwarves have dark vision. 
and they can see in total darkness, but they can only see in black and white. And so that's what this kind of reminded me of with the underground people and putting it in black and white. Um, now, of course, the brainwashing doesn't stick. And the narrator very helpfully tells us that this is due to the fact that even if Hayata is unconscious, Ultraman still retains his personality. Now, this to me is a reaffirmation of the idea that Hayata and Ultraman, of course, are two beings in one body. Unlike we would get in Ultra 7 with Dan Moraboshi, which is actually a uh, false identity worn by Ultra 7, not an actual person. I've always liked this uh, two, uh, two personalities in one body. Uh, I think it espouses the Japanese cultural norm of cooperation. The two beings have to work together, even if Hayata may or may not remember any of this after it's all said and done. Of note here is that the transformation sequence is also tinted in black and white. That was really cool because everything else was in black and white. So, of course, Ultraman growing on the screen was in black and white. The battle between Ultraman and Telesodon ends up being a physical affair, with Ultraman closing in tight and keeping the fight in close quarters. So while Telesodon does have a ranged attack, the flamethrower is not overly long range, so a hand-to-hand -hand battle works very well for these two combatants. Ultraman primarily grapples and throws Telesodon around rather than chopping and striking. Uh, it does continue the same lighting style from earlier, giving the fight a real sense of urgency from the very dramatic lighting in the uh, the dark of the night in the city. The Ultraman here, he defeats Telesodon with a press slam. He actually presses the monster up above his head and then slams him to the ground. Now, online, I've seen this attack called the dropped rock, but if wrestling fans will call it the same way I did, a press slam or possibly a gorilla press slam, depending on your preference. Now, given the close quarters, hand-to-hand -hand nature of this fight, the finish is appropriate, even if it does mean no specium beam from Ultraman in this episode. Now in the finale, we do get to see the real Anne, and she's clearly been dubbed into Japanese. I can't tell what language she was speaking on the set from the way her lips move, but this was actually not uncommon with Westerners in tokusatsu film and TV series, where they would read the lines in their native tongue on set, and then they would be dubbed in post. Uh, a great example of this, of course, is uh, Nick Adams in Monster Zero, or Frankenstein Conquers the World, we got to see this, uh, this effect. Um, so let me, let me jump over now to Alan's notes, because Professor sent some notes on this episode as well. And, uh, Professor Alan says, uh, episode 22, underground destruction work. Some very interesting camera work in this one, setting an eerie, dramatic, scary tone. Somebody had watched some Cold War thrillers before directing this one. To use language... Associated with Doctor Who fans, this one was a hide-behind-the-sofa episode. I can imagine some kids being freaked out when um, Evil Anne pulls up the sunglasses and she's got no eyes. That's just creepy. I'm not sure if it was at this point of the season that the crew had become more comfortable with the show and were willing to experiment, or maybe they were just getting bored. And I appreciated the lesson of the story, never trust the French. At least, that's what I got from the episode. Uh, send all correspondence to... Uh, relatively geeky ad. No, I'm kidding, of course. I, I'm sure the professor is just joking. And Alan finishes. Love the podcast. Keep it the good work, Professor Alan. Relatively geeky podcast network and darkness to light. And I, and I agree. It definitely does have a sort of Cold War espionage sort of feel to it. And I think it, it again, the camera work and all that, they do get a little more daring. We've got some, uh, you know, some really um, um, ones that break the mold coming up. Uh, we've got a two-parter coming up. We've got one, you know, what may be my favorite episode which is a very dramatic 
episode coming up too. So there's a lot of good stuff on this period of Ultraman. The show has definitely hit its stride. And overall, another really strong episode. A wonderful story leaning heavily into science fiction tropes of underground civilizations and their machinations against the surface. But it also has a beautifully realized Aikaiju twist in the form of Telesodon. Uh, the varied camera setups and the more experimental filming techniques make it very visually interesting, and the action delivers on the mysterious premise. Uh, delivers in spades, I'd say. Telesodon's a popular monster, makes a great showing of himself in his debut, and the fight with him and Ultraman is, uh, is, is wonderful, just wonderfully executed. A top-notch episode all around, in my opinion, and I think the professor agreed with me, so I'm glad to hear that as well. What do you think? Have you watched this episode? Do you like Telesodon? Uh, Telesodon does appear um, going forward. I know he does have uh, some modern appearances. I know he has a spark doll. I have it. <laughs> it's with my other army of spark dolls and uh, Ultra um, Ultra 500, uh, 500 series uh, Kaiju, Ultra Kaiju. Uh, so what do you think? Write in or destruction directive at yahoo.com. Are you, did you like this episode? Did you think it was a little weird? Uh, do you just like Telesodon in general? Do you not like Telesodon? Let us know. We'll talk about it here on the air. Like I said, Earth destruction directive at yahoo.com. All right, I'm going to take a quick break and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Eons past. A monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation, slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life, now breathing the fires of radiation. Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters. we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. Avengers number 199 was cover dated September 1980 and was released on or about June 17th, 1980. This information, of course, comes from Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Now, this date really stood out because that's the day after I was born. So, uh, good to know that Red Ronin was out there right right when, when I was out there, I guess. So, <laughs> Our cover is by George Perez and Terry Austin. It features uh, the Beast and Jocasta tangled up inside wires from the inside of Red Ronin as we look out the cockpit and see Red Ronin's hand grabbing at Iron Man and the Vision. Our writer is David Michelini. Our penciler, George Perez. Our inker is Dan Green. Uh, the colorist is, uh, excuse me, the letterer is John Costanza. The colorist is Ben Sean. Our editor is Jim Salakrup, and I love this credit. Jim Shooter. Supreme Intelligence. I just imagine him as the big floating green head, except it's Jim Shooter's head as the Kree Supreme Intelligence. Uh, the title of our issue is Last Stand on Long Island, and our synopsis is adapted from marvel.wikia.com. Wonder Man arrives in time to help Hawkeye turn Red Rodan away from cross-technological compound, but they cannot stop its mindless rampage. They rendezvous with the other Avengers and Nick Fury aboard Behemoth, even as Dr. Cowan regains consciousness to find, to his chagrin, that he is unable to regain control of Red Ronin. The Avengers maneuver Red Ronin into deploying its rotary shield, which they capture and Iron Man rewires, enabling them to turn its built-in laser blade against the robot. 
Red Ronin gets knocked off its feet and then disabled, but its upper torso continues to crawl towards the Long Island Expressway. Fortunately, Jocasta and the Beast, who had earlier entered through Ronin's foot assembly, have made their way to the control room, and Beast manages to disconnect the power source just in time. Back at the mansion, the team is surprised to find Wanda and a extremely pregnant Carol Danvers accompanied by Dr. Don Blake. Incredibly, Ms. Marvel has undergone an entire pregnancy in two days and is about to give birth. Wow, now this is definitely an action-packed blow-off to this story. Now, let's get right into it because there's a lot to cover here. Uh, the cover, it's sort of a reverse angle from the previous cover. If you remember, the last, uh, last cover was the Avengers kind of flying around Red Ronin with him uh, fighting them. This one shows us a look out from the inside of Red Ronin's cockpit. Now, the figures of Jocasta and the Beast in the foreground are, are very nice, as is kind of the, uh, the blue monochrome Iron Man and Vision in the background through the cockpit screen. Uh, but the midground is very bland. There's a large red control panel taking up a good portion of the image. There's a lot of nice detail. I think Paris has drawn every individual button, knob, and lever. Uh, but the single color washes a lot of it out, so it doesn't look as nice as it could have. It's not a bad cover, but I like 198 better. Uh, two things worth noting. First, this Marvel comic could be worth $2,500 to you, uh, but it's probably not. A lot of people know this banner. Uh, from a, a lot of comics in this uh, this this uh, couple of months, and Red Ronin, the cover copy says the madness within Red Ronin. Ronin is spelled correctly this time. Now you'll remember on 198, uh, it's it said Red Ronin, like Ronin the Accuser with an A. So I think we should pick that up. On page one, we are this is our splash page. We're looking up at Red Ronin from Hawkeye's spot on the ground. We get scale and perspective of the size of Ronin relative to Hawkeye. This is very similar, of course, to what Herb Trimpey would do in Godzilla and Shogun Warriors. Very often on the splash page like this, we'd have a, a, a shot showing the, the scale of the giant characters compared to the human characters. Um, very welcome here. Perez has the, pers the perspective absolutely perfect. It's very dynamic as Hawkeye is jumping out of the way of the uh, stomping foot of Red Ronin. And we just see Red Ronin's body just extending up into the sky, uh, towering over Hawkeye. Very nice splash page here. Uh, page three, panels three through five, it's a very dynamic sequence here where Wonder Man flies into the Quinja and he ditches it and uses it as a, um, an attempted kamikaze attack, actually, on, on Red Ronin. But Red Ronin cuts it out of the sky with the laser blade. Wonderful carnage by Perez and company here, especially on panel five with the Quinjet being sliced in half. And we see all the individual uh, panels and bits flying after it's been uh, just, you know, the sound effect is Shrak, Z-H-H-R, Shrak, after being Shracked in half here. Wonderful stuff. Turning over to page six, uh, panel one, when uh, the rest of the Avengers show up and Hawkeye is... Um, uh, and is getting kind of briefed, I guess, by everybody. We get some great figure work here. It's just a simple panel with um, Yellow Jacket, Iron Man, and Hawkeye talking on one side, and then we see the Wasp and Wonder Man talking on the other with Captain America's head peeking out in the back. Um, it's just, like I said, the camaraderie of Hawkman, of Hawkman, of Hawkeye, Iron Man, and Yellow Jacket are really nice. The, the facial expressions are nice, too. There's a great little smirk on Yellow Jacket's face because Iron Man and Hawkeye and uh, and Yellow Jacket are all just kind of ribbing on each other. 
Uh, Wasp's figure next to all the men, I, I really like this because she definitely looks slight and feminine, but she doesn't look like, um, like a stick and she doesn't look like a vixen. She, you can definitely see her as she has a smaller frame. She has, uh, you know, she has toned arms, but they're just smaller than everyone else. And so she really, uh, looks good and the sizes all line up. Her, her talking with, with Simon, you can see that Simon is a good deal taller than her and just broader than her, but she still, she looks like an actual woman, which I thought was a, a very nice touch. And Perez, of course, draws, uh, male and female figures wonderfully. So that's not really a surprise there. Later on down that page, while Nick Fury is giving the debrief, we get a flashback um, to the electrical tech from last issue. This is really noble because there's tons and tons of Kirby Crackle uh, firing out of Behemoth and onto Red Ronin. I really appreciate a good Kirby Crackle. Over on page 7, we get a name drop of Dr. Takaguchi and Hashiyoki. Um, now, clearly, of course, that's Dr. Takaguchi. And Hashiyoki is obviously a misnamed Tamara Hashioka from the Godzilla series, as they were, of course, the creators or help, part of some of the creators of Red Ronin. Now, unfortunately, Dr. Takaguchi and Tamara do not appear, although um, as Marvel original characters, they certainly could have done so. Um, you know, uh, we may remember a while back now that the uh, the Shogun pilots all showed up in, um, was it Fantastic Four 226, I want to say, somewhere around there? And because they were the original Marvel characters, they could appear even if their Shogun robots could not. So, uh, but you know, it would have been, it would have been cramming them in here. There's so much action, but it's still nice to get a name drop for them. Later on down that page is a very amusing bit with Wonder Man questioning where the Beast and Jocasta are and Iron Man saying that he can't do anything about that. He's got to stop Red Ronin and not worry about, um, you know, Beast and Jocasta who are stuck inside Red Ronin. And Iron Man says, I'm sorry, but I'm sure Jocasta and the Beast would agree. They knew what they were getting into. And then we cut to Red Ronin and we get a word balloon coming out of a panel on uh, on Red Ronin by his neck that says, what the heck have we gotten into? Which is clearly the Beast. That just really amused me. You know, it's funny that, you know, the Beast, when he's with the X-Men, he's always got to be the brains of the operation. But with the Avengers, he can just kind of cut loose. And I, I just, I've always loved that dynamic. Pages 9 and 10, we get a sequence at a fast food restaurant called the Burger Trough. Be, you can tell what Dave Michelini must, must think of McDonald's from, from this sequence of, uh, uh, of, of uh, this, this cowboy clown entertaining the kids and he's trying to blow up a balloon and he sees Red Ronin coming and he, he dashes out of there and he says, uh, blow it up yourself, kid. I'm going back to Brooklyn. These suburbs ain't safe. Uh, as ridiculous as this is, that reminded me of Turk in his, uh, little extended cameo in the first season of the Netflix Luke Cage, because I'm going back to Hell's Kitchen where it's safe. <laughs> Turning over now to, uh, page 12, panels two through five. Um, this is when they knock the, uh, the rotary shield out of the sky and Cap is riding a sky cycle and he ditches a sky cycle and he's tumbling across the four panels trying to obviously stop his motion and land safely. Great multi-panel sequence here from Perez. It's very fluid. It's got great body positioning. Um, none of these positions are, are body positions that Cap couldn't get himself into, and they make sense, and they progress very well. I like this sequence a bit. Anytime I see uh, something like this, it always makes me think of Spider-Man, or going back even earlier than that, uh, Carmine Infantino used to do this with the Flash back in the in the Silver Age. Uh, obviously, just to show how fast he was moving here, it's more like a Spider-Man thing where we're getting the 
the you know the, the progression of the motion to create a, a fluid uh, scene. Over now onto page thirteen, panel five. When they activate the laser sword, uh, it's right as Red Ronin is reaching for it, and uh, his hand is utterly destroyed. It is shattered. Just yikes. I mean, it's all blown apart into little pieces. We can clearly see two of the fingers and the thumb flying off from it as the rest of it just explodes. And a zarkoosh is the, the sound effect here for the sword. Now, the carnage continues onto the next page as Red Ronin is laid low by his own weapon where they, they hit him in the ankle and he crashes down and then they're actually cutting him in half right at the, uh, right at his torso. So they definitely uh, do a number on Red Ronin here because, you know, nothing else that they've done can, can stop him. Wonderful sequence here showing the logistics of something this large being taken down by human-sized adversaries. In fact, the top of um, page 14, the first panel, it's as wide as the page, and it just shows him toppling down and twisting because he only has one. His, one of his legs is cut off at the knee, and so he's twisting and falling and landing Almost taking like a back bump, but with his leg, his, uh, his left leg, or excuse me, right leg still pointed up. Very nice sequence here. A little bit further down on uh, page 14, panel 3, as uh, Jocasta is um, trying to tell Dr. Cowan to stop. Uh, and he says he'd dearly love to, but he can't because uh, Red Ronin circuits have been fused. Uh, she's a great facial expression from Jocasta. Um, you know, as she... Her mouth is agape and her eyes are wide as she's in, in you know, just fear and, and uh, concern of how the hell are we going to stop this thing. I really like that. Of course, uh, Jocasta having a great role right now in Dan Slott's current Tony Stark Iron Man series as the uh, chief robotic ethicist for uh, for Tony Stark. Um, and actually, they're, they're starting a new story involving Ultron. And you know if Ultron's involved, then uh, Jocasta's going to be involved with that too. So looking forward to seeing how that plays out as we move into 2020. Big plans, of course, for Iron Man 2020, but that's not really relevant to this Avengers issue. So um, over on page 15, Red Ronin is pulling a Terminator. Only this is four years before the Terminator. Uh, as we see the upper portion of his body still crawling, pulling itself along much like, of course, the Terminator does at the end of that film. Uh, so uh, they were ahead of the game here. They were ahead of the curve, for sure. Now, at least the ending is different, as uh, there's nothing with the hydraulic press. Uh, but Lee literally pulls the plug from the inside as he pulls one, disconnects one cable, and that's what stops Red Ronin in his tracks before he can smash the, uh, the LIE. Um, over on page 16, panel 6, <laughs> Behemoth is equipped with a giant basket. That is... Strapped down underneath it is carrying all the Red Ronin parts. That's just amusing. Why do they have a giant basket? Was this something they developed to carry Godzilla? Because when they captured Godzilla with the Behemoth, they he could fit inside Behemoth. Why wouldn't Red Ronin's parts be able to fit inside of Godzilla can? These are questions, unfortunately, that do not get answered in this particular comics issue. Now over on uh, pages 17 and 18, this is the Carol Danvers subplot. It's not important to the Red Ronin story. Uh, so I'm not really going to cover it much here. I do actually have issue 200 of the Avengers. So I'm going to go um, pick that up and, and read that to at least see how all this insanity plays out. Because I've never read any of these before. So uh, I have not heard good things. But I try to go into every comic with an open mind. And we'll see what happens. 
Now this particular issue has no bullpen bulletins page. Instead, we get the Mighty Marvel Win Yourself Some Big Bucks Contest page, which is uh, why we have that mar this Marvel comic could be worth $2,500 to you. Now, Jim Shooter does give us a kind of pseudo soapbox. It's in a little yellow box. And he's talking about rising comic prices and uh, how Marvel plans to add more pages and content as a response. But in the meantime, here's a contest. Uh, there's no letters page either, which is a little disappointing since the last one um, was pretty lively. But uh, we just don't get it this time out. Uh, and overall, it's a, it's a pretty wonderful blow-off to the Red Ronin story. With all-out action, right until the cliffhanger, which leads into the big uh, anniversary issue. Uh, and lots of great visual smash-ups by Perez. The story itself is fairly straightforward. Not likely to go down in the annals of the greatest Avengers stories ever told. It does use the existing Red Ronin very well. When Michel um, you know, Michelini could have very easily concocted a different giant mecha and put him in that place, but using the continuity and using Red Ronin, I liked a lot. And Red Ronin really shines, getting put over as this truly unstoppable force who's only defeated because Hank McCoy happens to have a PhD. Really fun Bronze Age Marvel action, especially if you have any appreciation whatsoever of Red Ronin, the Marvel Godzilla, or just like giant robots, I think you'll dig this one. Uh, now, if you want to read this, you don't want to get the, uh, the physical issue. This has been reprinted. Uh, it is in Essential Avengers Volume 9, and it is also in Marvel Masterworks Ms. Marvel uh, Volume 2. I don't know that this includes the whole thing or just those pages with Ms. Marvel. I wasn't uh, unable to find out that answer. If anyone out there has um, Ms. Marvel, the Marvel Masterworks Ms. Marvel Volume 2, and this is the 2014 edition of the Marvel Masterworks, please write in and let me know. I'm, I'm really curious whether this includes the whole story or just the relevant Carol Danvers pages. I'm kind of leaning towards just the Danvers pages, but I don't know that for sure. Uh, flipping through now for some ads. There's a lot of house ads in this issue. For, for Well, it maybe just appears that way. We get uh, Bubble Yum, uh, HodgePodge ad. I don't know. Uh, now, we do get a, a, uh, a, a split full-page house ad where the top says, like the original X-Men, then you'll love the new X-Men by Chris Claremont, John Byrne, and Terry Austin, still uncanny after all these years. Uh, I like this image with, we have the original X-Men on the left and the new X-Men on the right, and in both, Gene and Cyclops are standing together, and the young Gene and Cyclops and the older Gene and Cyclops are kind of just glaring at each other. I don't know. <laughs> it just really amuses me. Nightcrawler has bamfed out, and uh, Storm and uh, Colossus are turned. They've turned their heads to look back, and we get Thunderbird's tombstone, which is a. I don't know if that's disrespectful or not. Now the bottom half of the house ad it says whatever knows fear burns at the touch of the man thing by Chris Claremont, Don Perlin, Don Perlin, easy for me to say, and Bob. Wyacek, the most exciting swamp creature of them all. And swamp creature is totally written in the Swamp Thing font. I'm just, it's just shameless. Uh, just, just great. I love the man thing. Great stuff here. Uh, let's see. We get um, the uh, a full-page Heroes World ad all about Empire Strikes Back toys. This is very neat, listing all the, uh, the different uh, new figures coming for the Empire Strikes Back. We get the Marvel subscription page. Uh, where it's um, the Hulk doing the uh, almost masterpiece theater type thing, uh, where he is sitting in the uh, 
in a smoking jacket drinking tea with his Emily Post. Actually, what's funny is we get a, a little shot of She-Hulk sitting opposite him reading the Wall Street Journal wearing pink fuzzy slippers. Very amusing. Uh, <laughs> some more hodgepodge ads. Um, now, uh, we get a, uh, the Daisy 840 um, BB gun ad in the inside back cover. Now, we do have a hostess ad. Don't think we've done this one before. It's kind of odd that it, it does uh, appear in this issue when we've got the story with Carol Danvers because it's Captain Marvel in Defends the Earth. And it goes a little something like this. It is decided. We send Kree forces towards Earth to fulfill Fedor's energy manifestation of Earth plan. There is no time to lose. The Earth Chiefs of Staff may take retaliatory measures too soon. It's agreed. We will draw on all the Earth's military might to resist a suspected Kree attack. War is not the answer, gentlemen. Those who resort to violence have run out of ideas, but I have not. Even Fedor's inhuman warriors will not be able to resist the golden goodness of Hostess Twinkie's Cakes. The Chiefs of Staff agreed to Captain Marvel's plan and... The Earth ship is not a weapon of war, but a cargo vessel. Delicious cargo! Light golden sponge cake. Delightful creamed filling. Indeed, there is more intelligence on Earth than we imagined. Once again, you have foiled our enemies, Captain Marvel, with the aid of Hostess Twinkie's Cakes, gentlemen. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Twinkie's Cakes. You know, I, I, maybe, maybe it's the optimism. <laughs> maybe it's the optimist in me, I guess I should say, that um, I'd be okay if uh, the conflicts of both the world and the galaxy could be solved with the careful application of Twinkie's Cakes. It'd be certainly a lot better than fighting, wouldn't it? Um, Captain Marvel is in his, uh, his red and blue outfit here, his, uh, gorgeous blonde hair. Um, we're not too far away from the death of Captain Marvel, I don't think. We're only a few years away, aren't we? So, uh, kind of interesting to see Captain Marvel here. Not a, not a, uh, not a great, um, uh, uh, hostess ad here. I do like the design on the, uh, on the Cree. The Cree overlords here, they do look pretty neat, but, uh, they're, they're pink Cree, not, not blue Cree. So make of this what you will. I mean, uh, you know, I, I prefer the ones that have a villain, <laughs> even if it's just some guy, uh, driving a bulldozer or whatever, but this one's not bad. Art's pretty nice. So that's all I've got on, uh, Avengers 199. Do you have this one? I know there's a lot of, a lot more people out there, I assume, have issues of Avengers and have issues of Godzilla or Shogun Warriors. What did you think of this one? Did you like seeing Red Ronin pop up? Uh, did you, uh, did you not like it? Were you indifferent to it? Please write in. Tell me what you think. We'll talk about it. Earth Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. Love to hear from y'all. Uh, all right. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to finish out the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. Hi, I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren of the Rad Adventures Network. We're a married couple who enjoy great stories of all kinds, including adventures, mysteries, science fiction, and fantasy. Please join us for a variety of podcasts focused on a range of pop culture topics. Trekker Talk is about 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the comic Trekker by writer and artist Ron Randall. It's a blend of classic sci-fi adventures and noir mysteries set in a retro future. Xenozoic Xenophiles is about the comic Xenozoic Tales by writer and artist Mark Schultz. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. 
Warlord Worlds covers the many comics of writer and artist Mike Grell, including The Warlord, John Sable, Green Arrow, and The Legion of Superheroes. Sensational Sluice, where we talk about favorite mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. Fantastic Fantasies, where we share our favorite fantasy films and books. And Amazing Adventures, where we discuss action-packed adventure stories. Listen on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or visit RadAdventuresNetwork.com to find all of our shows and links to our social media pages. That's Rad, R-A-D, which is short for Ruth and Darren. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And now it's time for my favorite part of the show, a little bit of listener feedback. If you would like to uh, send feedback into the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Twitter. Listen to the outro to the show. You'll have all the ways to get in touch with me there. So we've got an email here. It's from good friend of the show, Jack Bond, and it's entitled, Get It? Gotten? Good. And Jack writes, it's like Christmas in July, in June, to get a special Gaiden side story extra episode. Despite my looking for any and all sci-fi stuff in the week of Star Wars, I hadn't heard of the war in space before the internet age when I rented the DVD. The copycat bandwagon-jumping, coattail-riding movie imported back then was Toei's Message from Space. Now that one I do remember. Uh, I feel that I've said that before. If it was to use, apologies. Ah, don't worry about it. I repeat myself all the time. Message from Space also had a sailing ship in space, so Bill and Gene would approve. For the other type of shipping, three of the Magnificent Seven gathered include a pair of hot rod pilots and a young lady who flew the carrier vessel who supported them. I always get Message from Space and Warning from Space mixed up. Those are two totally different movies. Two things, <laughs> Jack continues, two things I hope to learn were how were how a galactic empire could basically be one planet looking to relocate, and if there were any ties to other Toho movies. Yeah, not much hope for the first. On the second, I gather it's what they term a loose continuity, which I interpret as mostly fan-supplied. In my head canon, the history of the Gotten's development includes at least one person shouting, Atragon was built in a cave with a box of scraps! That, that legitimately popped me, uh, Jack. I love that. That's one of my favorite lines from Iron Man. <laughs> Jack continues, Gene shouldn't be ashamed that his mind goes to off-axis thrust first. I only wish my mind were that sharp. It's only later, in front of the fridge, that I think of thrust, or space on the ship for fuel, or even support machinery. Where my mind first went was the revolver launch system. I was happy to note the hangar bay model builders went to the trouble to build a platform in the bottom of each launch tube that rotated as the revolver did, so the fighter wasn't upside down when it got to the outside of the ship. I dug through my hard drive backups for the screen grabs. I can only assume that if we'd been told the name of the Earth fighters, I wouldn't have succumbed to the temptation to label them bullet craft. Oh, that's brilliant. That's perfect. <laughs> bullet craft, I like it. Like something from a shoot 'em up game. Uh, when Gene mentioned his Marvel RPG player who wanted a character unlike Green Lantern, but who rolled one a lot like Green Lantern, about five people thought, oh, Quasar? And I guarantee you Gene was one of those people. Magic jewelry flying through space, the whole nine. Uh, Jack finishes, it was a fun 70s Toho science fiction movie that bolted on Star Wars bits. Well, they helped it get made. Signed, Jack. Oh, 
that <laughs> I had so much fun doing the war in space with with uh, Gene and Dr. Bill, and I'm glad you enjoyed it, Jack. I knew that movie would be right up your alley with uh, all the mecha, all the different ships and everything else. So that was a uh, that was a great episode. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you very much for writing in. And uh, I guess I'll have to see if I can if I have I don't know if I have message from space. Like I said, I know I have warning from space. Two different movies. So, <laughs> all right, we got one more email here. This is from uh, Chris Sanganetti and is entitled Rodan slash Godzilla King of the Monsters. And Chris writes, "Hi, just saw Godzilla King of the Monsters. Great movie. Loved it. The fight scenes were awesome. Not dark at all, like some complaints." Love the post-credit scene. So, are we going to get a Godzilla Kong team up versus Ghidorah, or maybe Mecha Ghidorah? Um, jumping in here, I don't know what we're going to get in Godzilla versus Kong. That certainly is the tease that it could be Mecha King Ghidorah. I read a, a little bit with um, with um, Dougherty, um a few days ago, where he said they said, "Oh, he explains the post-credit sequence." He's like, "Look, the idea is that we can go anywhere we want with it because just having." King Ghidorah's DNA means you can go in a multitude of different directions, was the gist of what he said. So I'll be interested to see uh, if that plays out or if that's just a dangling plot thread. We'll see how it's uh, handled in uh, Godzilla vs. Kong. Uh, Chris continues, and maybe you can help my memory, but I recently, just recently watched Rodan, but childhood memories, I seem to remember male and female Rodans attacking a city to find a baby Rodan. Um, Chris, I think you may be confusing Rodan with Gappa. Because while there are a male and female Rodan in Rodan, there is also a male and female Gappa in Gappa, and they are in fact going to rescue the baby Gappa. So check out Gappa, also known by its um, American television name, Monster of Prehistoric Planet. We have covered it here on the show. Check that out. That Maybe that's the one you're thinking of. Um, Chris continues, and I can't wait. I ordered a copy of Space Wars. Reminded me of the Gotten from Final Wars. Also saw the Netflix Ultraman and got hooked. Keep them stomping. Waiting on Johnny Sacco coverage, signed Chris. Oh man, I I have to finish Ultraman before I can even consider doing Johnny Sacco. So we got at least a little while to go on that one. And uh, Netflix Ultraman is coming, I promise. Um, that that was one of the things I wanted to cover as a guide, and uh, I still plan to get to that. It's just um, you know schedule is going to have to change a little bit uh, here in in 2019. But Chris, thank you very much uh, for writing in. And again, if, if all of you would like to. Uh, any of you would like to write in Earth Destruction Directive at yahoo.com. Now, the last episode, again, which was Godzilla Final Wars, got social media likes, shares, and retweets from Brian Sever, Jason Giaconetti, the hair metal hero Chris Power, Professor Allen, Adam Tebow, Derek W. Crabb, Chuck Rodriguez, Gene Hendricks, John Vanover, Robert Ward, Tim Elliott, Joey Weiser, Christopher Warden, Liz Ann Oswalt, the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Two True Freaks, the Fan Holes Podcast, History of Comics on Film, Bro Rad, Bob Hansen, and Siskoid. So thank you everyone for the likes, shares, and retweets, helping get the word out there for Earth Destruction Directive. I appreciate it very much. So now it comes to time. What are we covering next episode. Well, the next episode of Earth Destruction Directive, we're shifting gears a little bit. We're staying in the Showa era. We're moving from TV back to movies, and we're jumping over from uh, uh, Subaraya over to Dai. And we're taking a look at Gamera versus Zegra, the second to last of the Showa Gamera films. And uh, many people consider this the real last one because uh, Super Monster Gamera is kind of an oddball. But uh, 
Gamma vs. Zegra featuring the giant shark monster Zegra. We're also going to be continuing our look at uh, Godzilla, Marvel Godzilla characters appearing elsewhere in the Marvel Universe. We're going over to Iron Man, Volume 1, Number 193, which uh, I'll be great to cover some Iron Man. You guys know how much I love Iron Man, my favorite comics character of all time. And this is one I've had for a while, so definitely looking forward to covering this. And, of course, we'll have any news or updates on uh, Godzilla vs. Kong, the new uh, Mill Creek Ultraman releases, anything else that comes up. So uh, look forward to that. Uh, I, uh, I'm really going to try to get this one out in a more timely manner. I've got things a little bit settled um, in my uh, personal life here, of course, but uh, I, I'll refer to the joke I've used on many occasions. You can tell a podcaster is lying because his lips are moving. So in any event... Uh, thank you, everyone, for downloading, listening to the show. I hope you all enjoyed our coverage of Ultraman, and I hope you'll come back for Gamera versus Zegra and Iron Man the next time. So uh, I want to thank everyone. I also want to say, once again, this show is for everyone. If you are interested in Daikaiju or Mecha or anything else like that that we cover, you are welcome here, and you are part of this community. Thank you, everyone, once again, and until next time, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF <laughs> moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.